For decades now, his life has been a life of ministry. Many years ago, he based himself in Africa, but God has led him to many other places besides. He's been involved in ministry, fostering ministry, and growing mission work around the world. His name is Kim Busel. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Kim Busel, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate your time. Privileged to be here. It's all about mission for you, ministry. We're going to talk about what you're doing today, a number of very, very exciting things, things you've done in the past. But before we dive into your life of mission and ministry, let's go back to the beginning. Where did you, where did you spring from? From a little place called Massachusetts, up north of here. What was your what was your upbringing like? Were you were you raised? Was it a life of service? Was it a were you raised in a religious home? What was that all about? Um, it was a life of work. Yeah. Uh, my dad left before I was born. My mother had four children, me being the youngest, obviously. And uh, poor town in Western Massachusetts. And uh, I guess I, memories are just working from childhood on up. So. A, a, a good, good education. A single mother with four kids. Yeah, life might have been a little bit tough. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was, especially three of them being boys. Do you remember it as being difficult? No. You know, you, when you're a child, you're resilient. You know, life is life. You get up every day. You do what you do. You know, I knew we were different. I knew we didn't have what other people had. I knew I didn't have a father, and all my friends did. So you see those differences. But as a child, you adapt, you figure out how to survive in the world and navigate. And so I thought I have very good memories, very good memories of our childhood. So which direction were you heading? Where was life taking you when you were a kid? My mother hooked up with an older gentleman that she became a partner with, and uh, he happened to be training thoroughbred horses. So for, from 7 to 16, I grew up the racetrack. But you never made a life in horse racing or breeding or training or anything like that. Somehow you glommed on to, let's put that in a more appropriate term, God led your life into a life of service and mission and ministry. So how'd that happen? How'd that happen? Well, you know, when I look back, the desire to serve, the desire to help had been there for a long time. My mother set a very good example of helping others. You know, if I was working till midnight, hitchhiking home at night, I'd find someone on the road, bring them home, let them stay in our, you know, sleep on the couch, feed them breakfast. Our home was always open to people. Um, my mother took in a lot of um, foster care kids, old people, elderly, anybody that needed help often found shelter in our home. And so that appealed, must have appealed to me, must have got ingrained in me. And even before... While as an atheist, they had a boat called Care or Hope, or you know, people went around the world helping people, and that always that idea appealed to me even from a young age. So tell me about this atheism. How did that? How did? And what kind of atheist were you? A good one. Oh, you yeah. know, I, I loved it. Being an atheist was great. You know, I really thoroughly um, sounds strange that you would enjoy it, but I was raised that way. I was taught evolution in school. You know, they said evolutionary theory. But they didn't teach it to you as a theory. They taught it, this is the way it is. That's right. And that's what my mother believed, and that she's in her 90s, and she still believes that. Okay? We evolved from apes, and we're just the next species that's happening upon the scene. And so all my growing up years, 
that's what I believed. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe uh, in religion. Well, somewhere this great transformation took place. It did. Tell me it how did. that happened. Well, it was amazing. Well, you know, it's always special when you look back and see how God has led. I actually had gone to Europe in my junior year of high school. And when I came back, I had enough credits to graduate. But I needed, I don't know, English and, and American history. So they let me go to college and send those credits back. I had good grades. And at college, we had this professor. He was my favorite. He was my, by far my favorite teacher of all time. He taught ancient civilization and philosophy. And if anybody got stoned, you know, smoked hash before class, he would really get after us. He would say, come and get me. We go smoke hash, and then we come to class. But you guys doing this stuff without me, that's not on. Okay, so, so in those days, you know, we thought he was a really cool guy. And he was an excellent teacher. So he's the one that God used to plant seeds. Because okay? here I am an atheist, and I'm happy. I'm very comfortable, you know. Nobody can judge you. You don't judge anybody. You know, we're just going to go to a black hole someday, whatever. Sure. So, so one day in class, he's teaching about the Stoics, the Epicureans, and how their thought patterns were and how they assess things. And he says, now these guys, he says, he says, which of us? You look out on the lawn. Look out on the lawn. They're beautiful, New England, deep green carpet lawn. He says, if we went out there and found a pocket watch, and we open it up, and here's the second hand going around in the minute and the hour hand, and you open the back of it, and there's these gears meshing nicely and a little spring going back and forth. He says, how many of us would say, oh, all the elements came out of the ground right there and formed themselves into this watch? How many of us would believe it? Of course, none of us would believe that. We would say reason has created this. There's a thought process. Somebody designed this thing. And then he said, these guys looked at the universe and they looked at the solar system and they looked at the human body and our eyes and our ears and they said, you know what? There's the designer. He this did he, not just happen. He was preaching a life-changing Amazing, sermon. amazing. A life-changing okay, sermon. And I went out of that class, John, and I was troubled. Okay, because it was the first time in my 19 years that I thought, whoa, I can't deny his logic. And I knew right then, if there was a creator, there was going to be accountability. Right. And I didn't like that idea at all. Okay, that I was going to have to be accountable to a creator. But his, you know, his words, his influence that day has really set my feet on a path to start contemplating that there was a God, now, that was there was a, a creator. Was he a believer himself? I don't know. I mean, he must have been. He must have believed him, that there was a creator. I, yeah. I, I think that is true. Okay. Um, I never got into his religious beliefs or his persuasion. Yeah. Um, you know, it was probably towards the end of the school year, and I just kind of went on with life. But he, he planted those seeds. So what happened next? I started looking for God. You know, I didn't know that, but sure. I, I would go to bookstores in those days. We used a lot of books, and I would go to the philosophy section, and I would start looking for gems of truth. Some, you know, there's a hole in your life. There's this longing 
for something more than what you have. And so I went through that process. One day, and I, you know, as a young person, I don't want to part with money for something like a book. That was, you know, you save the money for more important things sure. in life. Yeah. And I was in this bookstore, and I found this book, and it really intrigued me. It really, reading through it, the sentiments, the thoughts that were expressed were very good. The only part I didn't like, it did talk about God in it some, and I wasn't too sure about that. But I parted with hard-earned cash, and I bought that book, okay? And I read it, and I would refer to it. And I learned years later, um, someone had extracted Ecclesiastes and Proverbs out of the Bible, put it in this little book, and that's what I bought. It was called Ancient Wisdom for Modern Man, something like that. And I didn't know it was the Bible that I was reading or studying. And, and uh, so it spoke to my heart. Yeah. So there was that journey of, of wanting something better, wanting something more. And that path uh, finally unfolded very nicely for me. And how did they do that? Give me the 10-second the version. You, All right. You, you uh, became a, fr- a, a friend card, of mine. A card-carrying uh, believer. I, I was living in Florida at the time, which yeah. is far from New England. I went up to, back up to New England. And a friend of mine, who the last time we'd been together, we'd been out and totaled his car. and ended up upside down in a ditch with the wheels spinning, and I hadn't seen him since. So I called him up. I said, Jeff, you want to go out? He says, no, I'm, I, I'm busy. I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm studying. I said, you back in college? He says, no. I said, what are you studying? He says, well, I'm studying the Bible. And uh, yeah, that's how it started. My brother, by the way, who's closest to me, he had become a Christian. Several months before this, I'd come up from Florida for his wedding, and uh, we met in a bar in Worcester, Massachusetts, and we were having a few beers, and, and he told me he became a Christian. I was like, wow, you know, that's, that's something. And uh, he started telling me what it was about, and then we went out in the parking lot and had a few joints, and then we went back in the bar and had a few more beers. And I said, you know, Kevin... As long as we can be brothers, we can, you know, have a few beers together, be whatever you want. You know, that's, that's, that's okay. But he, really, he had become a Christian. He was advancing in his Christian life at sure. that point. So then my friend uh, said he was studying the Bible, and I said, well, my brother gave me a Bible. So he came over within 15 minutes and uh, started Bible studies. Just like that. Yeah, yes, the time was right. It is fascinating how God yeah. leads me. Amen, amen. He invited me to church. I went to church, got invited home to this dairy farmer's home, and uh, had lunch, had a great day, and ended up working on their farm. How about that? Yeah, had Bible studies every night. Now, you came to faith in Christ, gave your life to him. Before long, you were, you were diving into ministry yourself. Tell True. me about that. True. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the pastor that baptized, I should tell you this, I studied for about nine months, and I wanted to be baptized. And my brother, who had become a Christian, he was worried about me when he heard I got involved with Adventists. He didn't know what those were. I didn't know what those were, you know. And so he was living in a, in a church in Worcester, Mass. He was going to a Lutheran church. 
And he was their maintenance person on their grounds. And he was going to a non-denominational church on Sabbath. And his wife was graduating from Mary the Assumption College. Devout Catholic. Ellen's a devout Catholic. And so, you know, here I am starting to have Bible studies. And I'm getting in with these Adventists. And I stopped smoking. And I stopped drinking. And I stopped doing pot. I, you know, my life from people's perspective is cleaning up. Sure. And he's worried. I became a vegetarian. And he's like, whoa, something's wrong with my brother. Okay? So he goes to his pastor, the Lutheran pastor, and he says, listen, my brother got involved with these people, you know, and his life is changing, and, and you know, I'm just worried about him. And he said, well, who is he? He says, well, he says oh, there, there's, he's a Seventh-day Adventist, and I don't know what that is. And I'm, he'll never forget what the pastor told him. He says, Kevin... Your brother's in good hands. Saturday's their big deal. He says, but those Adventists, they're good people. They pay tithe. Those Adventists, and, and that was the answer the minister gave him. And so then I sent him Desire of Ages, and, and he understood why my life was changing from habits of the past. And so at the end of nine months, I was ready. He wasn't sure if he was ready, but then we all got baptized together in Bennington, Vermont, my brother and his wife and myself. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it was great. It was very special. And Amen. We're very close to this day. That's, that's heartwarming. Yeah. So how did ministry happen? What, where were you headed professionally at that time? Well, I had been in building, construction, but actually my mother had gotten into community care homes. She had a home where she would take care of people that didn't need a nursing home. Yeah. But they just needed to be somewhere. And so for about a year, um, I ran a home with 13 people. I did all the cooking, the cleaning, the every, all that domestic stuff. And uh, she had another house with an equal number of people. So I was just helping her out. I'd been in Europe uh, for a year. And, and so I was just helping her out. And the day I got baptized, I got to remember... She's my only parent. She's the person I love more than anyone else in the world. Growing up, we, you know, it was clear. You got to take care of mom. The day I got baptized, she disowned me, disinherited me, and told me, you were the worst disappointment in my life. And so it didn't bode well. Me becoming a Christian and, of course, getting my brother involved with it, it did not, it did not go well. And so since I had been working with her, it was, it, I realized it was, that was going to be short-lived. And uh, the pastor who baptized us, you know, dear friend, Pastor Howard Fish, he, uh, he was starting to do an evangelistic series at his other church in Rutland, Vermont. And he said, listen, why don't you come up and do Bible work with me and do this series? And that was two weeks after I was baptized. And so I just went up, and I got a job in the area to, to earn money, and then did Bible work and did the meetings. And that evangelist got a call to be the conference evangelist in Kansas. And he'd been meeting with someone that you'll know very well. He'd been, you know, taking lessons from another evangelist at the time. And this evangelist had an evangelistic team that went with him wherever he would go around and do ministry. And he was doing cooking schools, nutrition seminars, Daniel and Revelation seminars. And that person's name was Mark Finley. And so we patterned that after Mark. And so I became a self-supporting Bible worker, you know, within a couple of months after becoming a seven, being baptized and giving my life to Christ. I don't want to stop the forward momentum here, but I do want to come back and talk about your mom for a second. Because clearly things got patched up over the years. And 
What was it that disappointed you so much? Just the, I'll, I'll let you answer. I won't yeah, even speak to Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you know, there's a lot there. Yeah. There's, there, there's a lot more than we could, could get into here. I think she probably felt rebuked that, that here I was leaving an atheistic lifestyle and embracing Christianity, which was something she was raised in. She was raised in the Baptist church and, you know, all her upbringing and all her days, she had been a, a faithful churchgoer. She'd had a very unfortunate experience with a pastor and with the church members, and, and that ended her church-going days. So there's probably a lot of pain there from the past, and other things played into that sure. that were painful for her. I think it's helpful for people to understand and recognize when they get into a situation like that. Man, there are things going on in the background of, it, of, of that other person's life. Sure you, 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 sure, you really, instead of feeling anger, feel some compassion. Right. So you became a Bible worker. Right. As a brand new Christian. Right. And then you, you, you well, that progressed until you became a, uh, I think the word missionary works. Right. An international missionary. Well, well we ended up, um, Joyce, my wife, also was part of that evangelistic team that she did the children's meetings and the cooking schools that year. At the end of that year, we got married. And in a short time, we ended up helping with the ministry in New England. And then not too long after that, the leader of that got a call to go to Africa to a place called Riverside Farm. And he didn't want to go alone. And so he invited us to go with him um, to help with, with the project in Africa. Okay. So you're young, married, you have kids by this time? By this time, we have one three months old, and we have one that's almost two. Okay, someone already thinks you are out of your mind. Right. A child that's almost three months old, one that's about two, and you're leaving behind the certainty of the life you know. Mm-hmm. You're leaving behind the very well-ordered United States sure. of America with, sure. all it's, with all it might offer you in the future. Leaving behind family, leaving behind everything you know, and you're going to... Africa, presumably, this was Zambia. Right. Took place, you, uh, had you ever been there? No, no, no. Okay. So this is a leap of faith or, or, or something. Or something. <laughs> How do you cross that bridge? I think this is a question on, on the minds of many people. How does a young couple with a young family choose to leave behind the first world and go off to some corner of the universe that, is filled with, it had to be fear and trepidation and uncertainty. How do you do that? What's the thinking well, process? Well, you know, probably it's, it's really more simple than it seems. You know, it was very painful to be rejected by my mother. She, I, by far, hands down, most important person in my life. You know, it, it, in the Bible, Jesus tells us, if you don't love me more than your father or mother, you're not worthy of me. Okay, so Bible text of that, caliber really sustained me and encouraged me that you know you you have to make a choice here and and I was compelled to make the choice when I found out there was a God who loved me forgave me provided eternity that that, you know I'm not just going to disappear into a black hole I mean it does the paradigm shift that goes from being an atheist to knowing you have a divine creator that loves you and wants to spend eternity with you that's a huge shift in your worldview and in what you experience in your heart, in your emotions. And so to serve, 
to you know be used to be a blessing to other people, there's nothing more wonderful than that opportunity. And so when the invitation came, it really wasn't that. I think for my wife, who had grown up in a New England town in New Hampshire, and you know, it was probably a bit more challenging to think about going over there. And we were warned, are you crazy? Your children, three months old, going to be two months old, you know, you're going to go off and uh, malaria, you know, there's a lot of things in Africa could get you, but if you feel God's calling you, that gave us assurance and, uh, and we went. So the Busels are off to Africa. We're going to find out in just a moment what happened next. This is Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. David DeRose, a specialist in internal medicine and preventive medicine. And I've been surprised over the years in working with patients and studying the medical research literature just how powerful hemorrheology is when it comes to health. You may be wondering, what is hemorrheology? Well, I call it the Methuselah Factor, and that's the title of my book. The Methuselah Factor really helps you connect with things that can help your blood be more fluid. You say, why is that important? It's important because it can help you decrease your risk of a stroke or a heart attack, even lower your risk of cancer. But it's a whole lot more than just preventing killer diseases. If you improve your blood fluidity, your mind will work better, you'll perform physically better, and you'll decrease your risk of dementia. So don't hesitate. Dive into the Methuselah Factor. Make a difference in your life and the life of those that you love. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is Kim Busell, who as a young man dived headfirst into a life of ministry, which before long led him and his young family to Africa. So Kim, you arrive in Zambia. We did. What did you go there to do? And what did you expect and what did you find? How well, did your expectations There was a ministry there called up? Riverside Farm. And it had been started about 10 years before. There was a medical clinic. Um, in fairness to Riverside, it was started by a man named Dr. J.G. Foster. He'd been a missionary in Botswana. World War II came along. He was an American. He had to go back home. At the end of World War II, he'd said to the church, hey, I want to go back. And they said, well, that's nice, but we don't have any money to send anybody back. He said, well, I'll go back on my own. So he decided to go back to Lusaka, which is the capital of Zambia, and he opened up a medical clinic. And he was the first European doctor to make house calls to everybody and anybody, okay? Whatever your color, your nationality, your status, Dr. Foster would come and treat you at home. And he became a legend. Make no mistake, his practice grew. And, and when we moved there in 1983, even now, 2022, people, there's people who don't know Riverside Farm. They know Foster's Farm. Okay, Dr. Foster was, was a godly man. He was a medical missionary, and he ministered to people. He liked farming as much as he liked being a doctor. And an opportunity came up for him to, to buy this farm. And so he bought it. And he started to develop it. He put a little clinic out there. And he started this farm. And as he got older, he realized, you know, I can't keep up 
with all this. You know, my medical practice in town, medical practice on the farm, running the farm. So he decided to give the farm to the church. And Elder Robert Pearson was the president of that division. So he told Elder Pearson, listen, I want to I wanna give the church my farm. And Elder Pearson says, well, what's it worth? He said, why do you know how much, why do you want to know what it's worth? He said, well, we're going to sell it. He said, I don't want you to sell it. I want you to have a training school. He says, if you give it to us, we're going to sell it. You want to have a training school, you call a place in Georgia called Wildwood, and, and they know about doing training schools and medical missionary work. So that's what he did. So in 1974, a group from Wildwood went over there, and they pioneered the work at Riverside. And most of those folks were getting ready to leave. And uh, the friend that we went through, Pastor Charles Cleveland, he asked us to go. And so we went and uh, to just go help Riverside. And I was actually going to try to start a vegetarian restaurant and food store in Lusaka in the capital city. Um, never happened. Um, we got there. It was busy. Folks that had been there a long time were leaving. And uh, we brought everything we needed in a container to build a medical launch because Riverside's name tells you it's on a river, and the Kafui River is right there, and about 200 kilometers upstream were a network of villages and lagoons and waterways, and, and they didn't have any access to medical care. So we built a medical launch and started going up the river. That was a major project. And then, interestingly enough, most everyone that we went with, there were several families, one lasted a year, one lasted 18 months. Uh, it wasn't a good fit for some people. And so my job description changed, and I became the administrator. And then they wanted me to be the farm manager. And then Elder Cleveland had another call after about two and a half years, and he came back, and they wanted me to be the executive director. And I said, you guys, I don't need any more titles. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I'll hold it for you. Go find someone to run this thing. And they said, no, no, you should do it. And I said, well, you're just desperate. So it was promotion by attrition, you know. I mean, people left. And so, uh, so I became the director at Riverside and, and just had a great time. We have all kinds of ministry activities, building churches. Uh, it's, it's a great ministry. How did it develop in those earlier, earlier days? You went there in the 80s. What, what did you see what sort of changes did you see Riverside well, go through? Well, one thing that happened really is grew. We, we sent one of our good students down to Zimbabwe to get training in, in agriculture. And he came back, and we started a scientific gardening training program, which was really very practical, very good, and, and uh, he was excellent. He was, his name was Godfrey, and he was excellent at doing that. And so when people landed at Riverside, the first thing they saw was this vegetable garden that was picture perfect. I mean, just beautiful. And then other people wanted it. Hey, can you come to Malawi and help us do it? Can you come to Uganda and help us do it? And then the Tanzania Union came and saw Riverside, and they said, we need that in Tanzania. We've got a 5,000-acre farm, and it just costs us money, and we can't do anything with it. And Riverside's 3,000 acres. So they said, would you come help us do that? So in 1989, drove up there, looked at a place called Kibidula Farm, and then we launched another riverside at Kibidula. Um, so we were busy, and again, building churches all over the country, training pioneer workers, running the clinic. Um, then eventually we added a dental clinic to it, so we have a, 
uh, full-time. We have three dentists at Riverside and a truck that goes out to the bush and, and you provide free dental care. And so we have a tailoring center to train women in tailoring and evangelism. And, it's, it's, and we run a commercial farm to generate the income to do all that we do. What do you, what do you produce on the farm? Uh, bananas. We've got 100 acres of bananas and wheat and soybeans. They're our big commercial crops. Mm, fantastic. And, uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's one of the truly self-supporting ministries in the world where the farm generates the income to, to cover what we do. Yeah. It's, it's, now, Riverside isn't, a, isn't an, uh, an end unto itself. It's a, it's a means to an end. Correct. And that end is to share Jesus with, with others. Amen. So, so just give me a couple of examples about how you, how you see that happening. Okay. Because Riverside is a fabulous model for self-supporting work. Well, we partnered early on with a ministry called Light Bears. And I'm sure you're familiar with Ty Gibson and Light Bears. And we started translating, and they started printing. And so since the early 80s, container loads of literature have been coming over from light bearers. And Riverside's the place where that all gets distributed from. There's 1.1 million Seventh-day Adventists in Zambia, country the size of Texas. So it's, it's had an impact. Now, not Riverside alone, but Riverside and light bearers have participated greatly in sharing the gospel uh, in Zambia. And then we have what we call our pioneer Bible workers. They go out into the rural areas and uh, everybody is happy. I mean, they go to the tough regions. They're happy to be there. And the union president calls them the bulldogs of Zambia. Okay. They go to places other pastors are not willing to go and, and, and they share the gospel. They just, and they, you know, they help with simple diseases and agriculture and, and share what they've learned at Riverside. Now, you haven't only been at Riverside. You were there for a time, and then you, you've gone on to do other things. You got right. involved with an uh, organization called Outpost Centers International, That's OCI. True. That's right. So talk a little bit about uh, OCI and your involvement there. Okay, well, Outpost Centers is a ministry that is, uh, nurtures and encourages and help launch supporting ministries all over the world. It's kind of like an umbrella organization, a sisterhood or brotherhood of ministries. And, you know, there's now, I think, 228 or 240 ministries scattered around the world, whether that's Australia or China or India or Eastern, Western Europe, Russia, Ukraine, South America, Central America. And these are ministries that are started by lay people and, and could be a secondary school, a primary school, an orphanage, a wellness center. Uh, we were involved in launching one in Portugal for five years. Uh, we went there and started a wellness center in the School of Health Promotion. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, I would just encourage you to go on the website, Outpost Centers International, and you might find some encouragement, inspiration to see how you could launch a ministry yourself. Uh, it's everything from places the size of Riverside or Kibidula in Tanzania to a husband and wife team that are, you know, doing a small wellness center in their home. Um, in Russia or South America. I want to come back to Africa for a minute. I, I want to anticipate the thought on somebody's mind. So you, you, you go there. You mentioned malaria earlier. Right. So you take a couple of kids and a, and a, and a wife, yep. and uh, you, your family goes. Mm-hmm. What kind of challenges did you, did you have to work through? You know, after all, you've just come from North America. You've right. been dropped into a country very unlike your own. Yeah. Well, what do you work through? Well, the, you know, there are diseases. Uh, that's the main thing that you struggle with. The malaria was still the number one killer in the world when we went there. 
And uh, we've had our hearts wrung as hard as they've been wrung seeing our children almost die of malaria. I mean, it's real. It's real. And it's a very, you know, unpleasant moment to go through, very uh, heart-searching. And, and we're grateful. You know, the Lord was always spared. I've, I have fellow missionaries, their children died. And it's very, you know, God was nonetheless with them than he was with us. That's right. And, and, but they passed through those waters, and it's real. How do you work through it? You go to serve God, and the life of your flesh and blood yeah. is on the line. Well, yeah. What kind of conversations do you have with God at that time? And how does that, does that ever discourage a person? How do you process that? Uh, it's very, uh, when you're in that moment, and parents around the world have this moment, with, right. whatever disease it might be. Yep. And I think as a parent, there's a fear that something is in your own life, that your prayers on behalf of your children aren't heard or can't be carried out. You, you know what I mean? That's, that's, you do some real soul searching because you don't want anything in your own life to prevent God from working to, to save the life of your child. I think that's the most difficult part of, for me, of those moments. And, of course, having the children not understand why they're suffering and, and what's going on. So so let me ask a bigger picture about your kids. You, you, you raised two, two boys yeah. in Africa. Yeah. Now, so wh- how, how did that form their lives, and what did they go on, well, what did they go on to do, and right. how, how did they get involved in ministry? Right. Well, we and so didn't forth? have the term third culture kids in those days. Right. We didn't realize what we were doing. You know, um, ignorance allows you to go wrong with confidence, and I've, I have a lot of ignorance. You know, so we did many things ignorantly, uh, and we could do it with a lot of confidence. Now, I don't say that, that you know, I say that lightheartedly in this situation sure, with sure. our children. Yeah. For them, they loved it. To grow up in the bush of Africa on 3,000 acres is, is wonderful, okay, outdoors, what have you. But they, they bought in early on in our lives, in their lives, into what it was about. You know, when we moved to Tanzania and started Kibidu, it was cold. It was rainy there, and it really was cold, okay? And so uh, one day, we had just finished building a house, and we're inside, and a mother and her small children are passing by, and they get underneath the eave of uh, our outside bathroom, and they're shivering. And, and, you know, Jared was maybe 11 years old. He goes in, and he gets his clothes, and he gets blankets off his bed, and he and he's taking him to this little child that's shivering, okay? Well, that's, just, that's, the, that's the desired response you want your children to have. Now, you can't empty your wardrobe, okay? You, you have to let them give some things away, but not give everything away. And so early on, their hearts were touched by the needs of those around them. And actually, as we were at Kibidula, we had students that were refugees from South Sudan. South Sudan had been in civil war for 24 years, and they were part of our student group at Kibidula. And Friday evenings, we'd have worship in our home, and they would stay and visit. And the stories they would tell were heartbreaking, John, just heartbreaking, what they had gone through, what their families had gone to, to see their whole villages murdered. Okay, these are, this is trauma. These are things that, that don't leave a person. One of the young ladies told the story where her mother took her and her sister, and for six weeks they went through the jungle in South Sudan to get out. 
You can't use roads. You can't use paths because there's landmines. They finally get out and they get into northern Uganda and they get to a road and a bus comes. And they get on the bus and they're so grateful. Every, you know, every rotation of that wheel gets her further away. Well, they get about five miles and the gorillas come out of the jungle and they stop the bus and they make everybody get off. Well, no, I, that's not true. They get on the bus and the soldier's going down the aisle and he looks at this woman says, are these your two daughters? And she says, yes. He says, take your daughters and get off the bus. Now, if you were a mother, your heart was aching right then because when those guys take you into the bush, you know what you're going to suffer. Okay, and that's what's going through her mind. And the man got her to the door and told her, you take your daughters and you run. And no matter what you hear, you don't turn around. She takes her daughter one in each hand, she runs. And then they shoot everybody on the bus. They hear the screaming, they hear the gunshots, they hear everything going on. And the daughter makes it to, to Kibidula Farm. And so the boys are hearing these stories. And, and Jabel, our oldest, was 15 years old at the time. And after they left one evening, he came and he said, I want to go help the people in South Sudan. And Joyce said, Jabel, it's very dangerous in South Sudan. And he said, well, just because it's dangerous, does that mean they don't need to know about the love of Jesus? Well. So what do you say to a 15-year-old? He's 15 years old. You say, well, buddy, at 15, they won't let you go. But when you're 18, if you feel that's what God's called you, then you can go. And at 18, he and his cousin and his younger brother went up into South Sudan, and they started building churches and schools and agricultural projects in the middle of the Civil War. People thought we were crazy, John. What kind of parent are you? You're letting your teenagers go into civil war in South Sudan. What are you thinking? Good questions. Good questions. Heart-searching questions. But uh, given the desire of the boys, you'd probably be crazy not to let them go. And and no one knows your boys like you. That's what they felt God was putting on their hearts. And we thank God he spared them. They were in continuously in life-threatening situations. And uh, people up there couldn't believe it. But God used them to build schools, to build churches, to save lives. Um, it was just a wonderful time to see that happen, although it was very uh, concerning at the same time. Well, I know you've gone on to do other things, even as you're still ministering in Africa. Uh, Africa, you consider your home base, right? Yeah, that's our home base. That's, that's, home. that's when we When we pull into Riverside, that's... We're home. Yeah. You know, it's just, that feeling grew many, many years ago, and it's still there. Have a lot of affection for the people, the family, the, the folks there. Well, in a moment, I'm going to ask you a question that's on the minds of a lot of people. We're going to talk about sacrifice, and we'll come up to speed with some of the things you're involved in today. With Kim Busel, I'm John Bradshaw. This is our conversation. We'll have more of that in just a moment. What does the Bible say about astrology? Why do bad things happen to good people? What color is Jesus? 
If you have a question, we'd love to find an answer for you from the Bible. Line up online from It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. And my guest is Kim Busell. Kim, we've been talking about your, your life in Africa, your conversion, your raising children in Africa, children who ended up seeing incredible things and then experiencing and doing incredible things. Let's talk about sacrifice. I want to ask you, who, who came from a lifestyle, a life in the United States of America, where we have hot and cold running everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got more than we need. You, this, here you are. You're involved in construction. You clearly had a bright future. You could have done whatever you wanted to do, I'm sure. You left it all behind to go to uncertainty. Following God's leading is certainty, but right. to, to, to human uncertainty in Africa where no one was promising you riches or possessions or anything. So you've, you've it's about 40 years since you went to Africa and you've been other places besides, as you mentioned, you're back in Africa now. Tell me about sacrifice. Some people are going to say you sacrificed a lot. Do you see it that way? Uh, I wish I could. No, I don't even wish I could tell you I did. You know, John, it's amazing. Um, when we went to Riverside, our allowance was $100 a month for, I don't know, the first eight, ten years we were there. I don't know. Now, we had a house to live in. Electricity was paid. We grew most of our food right on the farm. I won't say it wasn't tight financially. That would be a misstatement, okay? It's tight financially. And I was visiting in the 90s a, a family that was very generous in helping us with our work in Africa. And I was visiting with one of the sons, and he wanted to know what I got paid. And I said, you know, I don't want to make you cry, man. You know, I don't want you to, you know, no, I want to know. What what do you get? I said, I get 100 bucks a month. And he was... More Speechless. than surprised. Yeah. That was unfathomable. Okay. Now, in the time it takes him to go to the restroom, he's made more than $100. Okay. I mean, it, it's, 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 and I said, listen, there's something you need to know. The difference between you and I is the difference between me and the guy in the village next door. To him, I'm you. Okay. If he ever owns a bicycle, if he gets a pair of shoes, he has status in the community. I know I'm wealthy, okay? To him, I'm you. That's the reality. Most of the time when we think of sacrifice, when we think of riches, we're looking in the wrong direction, okay? And we're comparing ourselves with people who are more affluent than we are, okay? I've always known I'm wealthy, okay? Now, people think I'm delusional, and that's okay, but if they would live where we live and see what we see, they would know how wealthy we really are. There's been no sacrifice in that sense, John. It's been a joy. It's been a privilege. And to see God work and to see him supply needs is, is the most exciting, thrilling. Now, I'll tell you one story. Yeah, yeah, what have you we're, seen? We're working with an orphanage in Zambia. Now, the leader of this orphanage, now, it's going to get a little long here. My mother, even though she didn't embrace the religious, the, the, she, she just looks at churches as big business. Going to Africa and do what we do really spoke to her heart. She would send bags of used clothing. She would send toys for the children. She saw that as a genuinely good thing to do. And I would bring a couple fellas with me every year when I came back to the OCI meetings. 
And so she said, well, one year when you come back, why don't you bring one of these guys and let them work for me for a month? Now, I had to choose someone very special that I could handle my mother. Okay, My mother's extremely generous, large-hearted, tough taskmaster. Okay, I mean, if you're not going to work, you better disappear. Okay, So I chose a young man named Kennedy. His was the first wedding I ever went to in Zambia. After one month, she says, well, I'd like to keep Kennedy a little longer. I talked to Kennedy. You want to stay? He says, yeah, it's going good. I'm, you know, we're getting along. Stays another month. At the end of the month, she wants him another month. And I'm like, well, it's getting kind of long. And he agrees. I mean, this is a chance of a lifetime. She's paying him. Yeah. Okay. And he's living there and, and no, he has no expenses and he's getting hard currency, you know, probably a hundred times more than he's ever been paid in his life. Okay. Surely than what he got at Riverside. So then she offers Kennedy. Kennedy. I'll fly your wife and your little boy here. I'll help you get citizenship. You can raise your family here. They can go to school in America. And she gave him that offer. And Kennedy looked at her and said, Mrs. Busel, Kim didn't send me here for this. There's a work that I need to do for my people in Zambia. And I'm sorry I can't take you up on your offer. One in 10 million, John, one in 10 million would pass up an offer to the promised land, paid for security to have the American dream. And Kennedy realized that's not what God was calling him to. Long story short, he starts an orphanage out in the bush, living in a hovel, with he and his wife Ronnie wanting to start an orphanage and care for the children that need it. They were living on almost nothing, okay? Little by little, God supplied their name need. We came back, found out what they're doing, jumped in full force, okay, to help them get houses built, school classrooms built, infrastructure, agriculture. So we're helping them the best we can. I'm in Australia, and you were in Australia, and I was doing a rise. You were at the camp meeting. That's right. And I get a message, and Kennedy says, Kim, we're having a crisis here. I need you to send me $8,000, and I'm irritated, right? Kennedy knows this is not how it works. You don't write Kim and say, please send me $8,000. You know, Kennedy, you know better than this, okay? And the worst part is I don't know where to get it. The person that had been helping with that orphanage had stopped, okay? And I don't know. I'm, Joyce and I are like, where, where is this going to come from? So we start praying, okay? And for a month, we're praying. At the end of a month, I get an email, I get 58 of them, and I delete, delete, delete. And then an email comes in from a guy I had met 14 months earlier. I had met him for 15 minutes, 14 months ago. All right? I meet a lot of people for 15 minutes. Sure. Now, you meet more people for 15 minutes. I had invited him to come to Zambia and to the orphanage and do a building project. I didn't know if he was a Christian. I didn't know. All I knew was he lived outside of Atlanta and put up metal buildings. That's all I knew about him. And I had invited him to come. 14 months later, I'm deleting emails and I see something, bellsouth.net, and I'm ready to delete it. And something tells me, don't delete this email. So I leave it. And after I do all my business, you know, the ones I should do, I come back to it. Dear Kim, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to return your email. I had written him a long email after I got back to Africa. He says, uh, you know, I've listened to several of your presentations. I feel like I know you. And I'm thinking, I don't even know how to listen to my presentations, right? 
How do you? He says, my wife and I have had an offering we've wanted to give since February. And we haven't been able to find a place. This morning, Nicole got up and said, orphanage. And I immediately thought about you. Would you be willing to receive a donation for the orphanage? I said, honey, let's pray about this. Are we willing to receive a donation? John, we're related. Okay. And and so I'm thrilled. I write him back. So good to hear from you. The orphanage really needs help right now. Here's the address. Just let me know how much you send and when you send it. And I'm thinking $2,000, maybe $2,500, okay, just based on my own assessment. Next email, dear Kim, within 24 hours, we're sending $25,000 to OCI for Anchor Orphanage. Amen. John, 25, I only need eight. Yeah. $25,000 from someone I had met for 15 minutes, 14 months before. All right. If you had squeezed me as hard as you could where it was going to come from, it wouldn't have been from him. Okay, and and I'll just tell you, a wonderful relationship has developed over the years as a result of, of him sending that. The next year, he came to Africa with me, visited the orphanage. Last week, we came back from he went to Ukraine with me last week. We just got back on Friday. And so a wonderful relationship has developed. But to see how God works and provides for needs, you want to talk about sacrifice. There's none of it. You know, he has the resources. You know, what it seems to me is, and, I, and I, I mean this in a way I hope is understood, people who chase the American dream, nothing wrong with that, but that comes at some sacrifice. A life of ministry, right. oh man, that's where it's at. Amen. You've seen miracles. You, you've seen God do the most amazing things. Yeah. You've been blessed and spiritually fed. Amen. If, you, if you'd stayed in the United States and, and being a successful successful in the construction industry. Again, nothing wrong right, with that. Right. But, but think of what you'd have missed out on. Right. You'd have chased the dream, and that would have been a sacrifice. Exactly. I mean, it's been an undeserved privilege, hands down. I've lived a very privileged life, and, um, you know, I don't know why. You know, I want to share that with others. I want to encourage others. I want to see other people have the, the blessing that comes through this type of activity. It's just been... You know, undeserved. Well, and 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 you you're, you're still going, still doing new things. Tell me about something called Adventist Help. You said a moment ago you just came back right. from Ukraine, right? Right. So Adventist Help has been involved in Ukraine and other places. Right. Talk about talk well, about what Adventist you're doing there. Help. It was it was initiative that started without any planning. We were at a meeting. We're in Budapest. Uh, we find 3,500 refugees, Syrian refugees, in the train station in Budapest. Mm. And there was an American doctor there, a friend of ours. He says, listen, you need to do something to help these people. This is an opportunity to be a blessing to people. They're fleeing Syria. Uh, they need care. They need help. Do something. And he committed $100,000 to do something. And we had no idea what that something would be. But there was about a half a dozen of us um, that, that responded and felt we could do something. And one of the people came to me and said, hey, Kim, I'm doing a sabbatical. Would you like some help with this? I'm willing to do an exploratory trip. I said, Christiane, go for it. That'll be great. So she went on a trip, ended up on the island of Lesbos, came back and said, we should turn a bus into a clinic and put it on the island of Lesbos where the rubber rafts are coming in. And so that's what we did. And, and we needed a name. And a friend of yours, Klaus Nybo, was one of the team. And he created our logo and put it together. And the next thing we know, we're receiving refugees. You know, I mean... You're meeting the, Syrian refugees getting out of boats. Out of the boat. We're getting them, you know, we're helping them out of the water. Wow. And, and again, a very traumatic, very rewarding 
Um, the hardest part was they would get hypothermia coming over. It's cold. Water's very cold. Mm. And and we'd you know they get changed, get them dry, get them in dry clothes. But some of the children would get so cold that even though you dried them off and put them in warm clothes, we didn't have a warming station. And at night they would pass away because oh. you couldn't get their body temperature back up. And so it was very it was very heartrending to see work through that. So you you were there as kids are dying. Yeah, we we were there. We were, other the medal goes to the people who were in the fishing villages receiving these refugees before anybody came. It just happened Adventist Help was the first outside initiative to come and set up on the shore and start ministering to these folks. A couple weeks later, more organizations started to come. Well, uh, someone whom you know, a man named Elder Ted Wilson, came along and he said, there's more refugees in Iraq than there are in Greece. Would you be willing to come, Adventist help, be willing to help in Iraq? And by then, they had stopped the boats. The EU and Turkey made an agreement to stop the boats. And we had a clinic at one of the refugee settlements where we had set up. And so... Uh, eventually, the um, Lord worked. Uh, no one was going to go to Iraq. And uh, I made an agreement with my wife. I wouldn't make trips that she wasn't comfortable with and she wasn't comfortable. And I went to my son. I said, hey, guys, help me out here a little bit with your mom. You know, encourage your Iraq. And, and they said, puppy, you got no business going to Iraq. And I said, hey, your when you guys were your teenagers. Sons, your sons are when you guys were teenagers, I supported you in a very dangerous endeavor because you felt that's what God wanted you to do, to go help in the middle of a civil war. And they said, well, that's just it, Papa. You're not young anymore. And I said, oh, John, good to strangle the young guy. <laughs> well, well, through a course of events, we had meetings, and Joyce realized that no one was going to go. And so after that, she says, you know, if nobody goes, nothing's going to happen. And you want to go anyway, so why don't you go? I said, honey, if that's a yes... <laughs> And so I went, did an exploratory trip to Iraq, and two weeks later, Michael John Van Orsten, who's our medical director, young guy I've known since he was three, uh, he went. Long story short, Adja had an office there, but no activity. We had activity. We were an initiative. We had no organization. Yeah. So Iraq wanted us to come, but we had no documentation. Adra had the documentation. They're already registered. So we formed a partnership, Advents Help and Adra, built a field hospital for 100,000 refugees in Iraq. And so uh, that's how we got involved in Iraq. And it, when we were there in February, reopening the urgent care center, uh, the phone started ringing and vibrating. The war in Ukraine had started. And they're asking, hey, can you come and help in Ukraine? And I'm thinking, you know, we're five, six people in this organization. I mean, we don't, we're volunteers. You know, why don't you call somebody who can actually do something? But... You know, the Lord opened up the door, and we're starting. Uh, I've been to Ukraine twice now, Moldova, Romania, Ukraine. And we're opening up a center in, in Moldova that will serve the refugees and also serve the Moldovan people. Um, they're in great need. Moldova. Wonderful people, Moldova too. has received more refugees per capita than any other country. Oh, is that so? Okay, and, and they're the poorest. And the Moldovans are giving from the what little they have, opening their hearts, their homes, their food to the Ukrainian refugees. So we're coming along beside them in the city of Kahul. We've brought in two ambulances. We're, we've, we've got a clinic base now for um, two dental offices and a medical office. 
And so we'll be serving that. And just this morning, I received word from Marcus All, who's heading up the Adventist Help Initiative in Ukraine crisis, that the Ministry of Health in Ukraine and the Ministry of the Interior both want us to come in and set up field hospitals. Uh, one will be predominantly serving soldiers, wounded soldiers, and the other, uh, the general population as well. What a great work. What an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. So you're ministering in Ukraine. You mentioned also you have work in Russia. What do you perceive Russian people are going through at this uh, stage? You know, the, the beauty of the work God calls us to, Jesus lived to bless others. Others includes everyone. That's right. Okay? There's, there's no distinction. And so, you know, we're here to serve refugees. We're here to serve people in need. And Outpost Centers International has ministries in Ukraine and in Russia. And right now, they're funding both of them to keep those facilities going, to keep them serving. They've turned into refugee centers. And so it doesn't matter if you're in Ukraine, you're in Russia, you're in need. People have needs. And our privilege is to minister to those needs with the little that we have. It seems to me the final chapters in this story will be written one day far in the future. God is using you absolutely on the front lines in ministry, based in Africa, working around the world. It's a wonderful story of God's goodness and God's blessing. Thanks for sharing with us. Well, it's a privilege, and uh, we just praise God for what he's doing. Amen. Thanks so much. And I hope you can praise God for what God is doing in your life. And I would be honest with you and tell you that my prayer is that as you've listened to stories of mission and ministry and service, you might be thinking about praying and asking God what God can do with you and through you to be a blessing to others in need also. He's Kim Busel. I'm John Bradshaw. This has been our conversation brought to you by It Is Written. It's Written.